You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 28th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, Israel braces for its third election in a year. Can we actually expect a government this time around? My guests, Tessa Shishkovitz and Yossi Meckelberg, will discuss that and the day's other news, including will the UK leave the EU without a deal after all? The rhetoric out of 10 Downing Street seems to suggest so. Plus, as another US publication announces it will not endorse a presidential candidate, we ask, do these endorsements actually matter? And as usual, on a Friday, we run through everything we've learned this week that we didn't know last week. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for Profile, and Yossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University. We will start in Israel, the people of which will beat the well-worn paths to their polling stations again on Monday in the third general election in the last 10 months. And it would be an optimist indeed who bet heavily against the prospect of doing this again before the year is out. Israeli governments have always been assembled from diverse and generally rancorous coalitions, but the system of late seems to have grown into complete gridlock. Very much not for the first time, an Israeli election looks mostly like a referendum on incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You'll see, there is the ancient joke which holds that the definition of insanity uh, is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different results. Is there any reason to expect this election to be any more decisive? You just summed it up. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, maybe we should ring FaceTime for the fourth, fifth and sixth election at this at this rate. You know, you look at polls and nothing is changing. It's in the margin and within the margin of all, of all polls. So, you know, we might be exactly in the same situation. And if this is the case, we have to look at two things, two main things. A, whether is a, a Victor Lieberman, the leader of Israel, but then going to change his mind. He said, going to be a government come what may, because he is the balancer. Mm-hmm. So if he decides to go either with Netanyahu or with Gantz, then there is a government. Secondly, on the 17th of March is the first day of Netanyahu's trial for corruption allegation. Visually, I think it, it will have a great impact. It's not it, a good look, is it? No, not for a prime minister to be, uh, to be in that. Uh, it's, it's a pretty ropey look for people who aren't prime ministers, in fairness. Yeah, especially when it's about uh, bribery, about fraud and breach of trust on three different uh, cases, while force might, is looming, possibly. Yes, and I think this might change also the mood within the society, the idea that he needs to leave, because it's impossible for a prime minister to serve between being on the benches in court and run a country, which is not the easiest of countries to run. But that's, that's, I think, that's the question. But you look at polls and you see that still more Israelis prefer Netanyahu over Gantz. And this is, I think, the tragedy of the Israeli opposition. Um, Tessa, democracy is generally held to be a good thing. And And indeed it is. But can a country, not just Israel, but any country, get to a point where it has had perhaps rather too much of it? Turnout at the last couple of elections has actually held up pretty well at around 69%. But does a country run a risk at some point of the voters just getting tired? Well, I think democracy in principle is good and should not be abandoned just because people still vote for Netanyahu. I think the Israel will overcome this. And one point which is interesting in terms of percentages is that the uh, Arab vote 
is going mm. up. So we had uh, 49%, I think, in March at the election, 59 in the fall. So this time, if more uh, Arab Israelis go to the polls, then they might increase their vote share and get more seats and might be a more interesting partner to support from outside uh, a Gantz coalition sort of to get rid of Netanyahu. So this is one point that we should look at, I think. The other is that uh, the it's so incredible to think that Netanyahu can still go and be prime minister if you look at it from outside. But um, Alof Ben, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, uh, explained to me one thing which I thought was very interesting. That if you look at who votes for who, you have the top part of the Israeli income sector votes for Gantz, mm -hmm. the lower middle class votes for Netanyahu, and the poor people vote either Arab parties or ultra-Orthodox, the religious. So the lower middle class, who is afraid to fall down out of the middle class into poverty, is defending Netanyahu, although they know he's completely corrupt. And that is one of the things which we see a lot in modern democracies now. Yeah, he may be a people... crook, but he's our crook. Exactly. Yossi, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I want to pick up that interesting point that Tessa raises about the increasing uh, vote among Israel's Arab citizens. Do we yet understand how, if maybe not at this election, then at the next election in May and the one after that in November, that might start to alter the way that Israeli politics looks? I think it should. Actually, I, I met the leader of the of the joint list mm -hmm. just, just two months ago, and they were quite upbeat, going from 13 seats to 15 seats. And I think they can make it only by increasing the, 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 the share of the vote and, and by have more participations, because it's really low among the, the, the Arabs, because they don't really trust the state. And also, so even if they vote, then the parties, the, the Jewish party, tell us, you're not part of the country. And I think that's where Benny Gantz is missing a trick. While for Netanyahu, is obviously he will incite and fearmonger against the arms. And if you vote for Benny Gantz, you're going to get terrorists supporting a, a, a government and Ahmed Tibi and, 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 and Ayman Oda and, and, and the rest. There was an opportunity for Benny Gantz to say, we are exactly, we stand for the opposite. Not moving with that and saying, we are going to be support because there are 20% of Israeli citizens that according to the Declaration of Independence, supposed to be equal. They are not equal, we know it because of the nation state law and other legislation. But they missed it. So the, what Benny Gantz is trying to do is competing with Netanyahu on his own pitch, instead of actually presenting some an, an alternative. At the same time, Ayman Uda, especially him, presenting a real challenge to the Israeli society. He said, you try to present us as outsiders, almost as a fifth column, and I'm telling you, I want to be part of this country. I want to be part of these states, and that will make this country ours, as everyone and every citizen is equal. But sadly, none of the, well, maybe one small party in Israel merits, maybe the Labour Party, but the rest of them don't rise out to this challenge. Tessa Shishkovitz and Yossi Meckelberg, thanks for joining us. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, here is Monocle's Yolin Goffan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Stock markets across the world are suffering their worst week since the global financial crisis of 2008. It comes as fears over the impact of the coronavirus continues to grip investors. Europe and Asia have seen big falls, while the Dow Jones in the US has recorded its biggest daily points drop. 
One of Hong Kong's most high-profile entrepreneurs, Jimmy Lai, has been charged with illegal assembly and intimidation. The democracy campaigner is accused of attending a demonstration in the city-state last year and clashing with a journalist in 2017. Critics say the charges are politically motivated. And the Dinosaur Park in London, which features 30 life-size replicas, has been added to a list of endangered sites. The creations, which date back to the 1850s, have been developing cracks. And the heritage body Historic England has now decided to add the Grade 1 listed replicas to its at-risk register. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Jolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, back with Tessa Shishkovitz and Yossi Meckelberg. Well, let's look at the UK and therefore and inevitably at Brexit, which some of us are old enough to remember being told had got done on January 31st. The likelihood that the actually hard part has only just started has been reinforced this week by the trading of opening salvos between the UK and the EU as both prepare to negotiate the future of their trading arrangement. At this early stage, both are taking a hard line. But are they taking any harder a line than anyone usually does at the beginning of any negotiation? Um, Tessa, what have you made of the tone so far? This whole sort of no deal, we'll walk, who the hell needs you anyway? It's all getting a bit 2017, isn't it? I mean, I'm afraid that this is a bit more than opening salvos because what we heard this week and what I heard yesterday in briefings in Downing Street was... All the time it is talk about sovereignty, it's talk about no submission to European Union uh, rules. And you think it is unnecessary, in my view, that Boris Johnson, with this huge majority he has in Parliament and an unstoppable sort of mandate now to get Brexit done, that he takes the hardest line. So I am afraid that he's actually preparing the population for a exiting the European Union without a deal at the end of the year. Because if you look closely at the text they um, presented yesterday, uh, there is quite a clear uh, uh, road opening for in June thinking, shall we still continue the negotiations if they haven't come to a fruitful point uh, of, uh, of a basic agreement on basic points. It cannot happen till June. It's just too big of a workload. And what Boris Johnson could have done is say, like, I have a big majority. I got officially out of the European Union already. And now we need three years to complete a proper agreement and we make a transition period longer than the end of 2020. Nobody could sort of bring him down and kick him out of power now. So he could do it. If he doesn't do it, it means that he's willing to gamble with billions of pounds that this hard Brexit will cost him. And the preparation for the population to be sort of pulled into this kind of things, we are standing alone against the world and the European Union are the bad guys, is, is in my view, really childish. And it's really getting uh, dangerously close to many, many people in England who will suffer from this hard Brexit. Well, you'll see what Tessa has outlined there was, I guess, the the optimistic assessment uh, of of last well of last December's election, which was this idea uh, that Boris Johnson, who never really cared about Brexit one way or the other, because he doesn't really care about anything other than being prime minister one way or the other, now has this majority. He's not beholden to the ideologically crazed headbangers of the European Research Group. He can now uh, be more reasonable. Do you think there's still anything? 
in that analysis, between that and the, I guess, the looming reality that Tessa also points out, that he might find room for a compromise if he's interested in making one? It feels like back to the future in many ways. With You look at what happened in 2016 to just this January, and you think they're repeating the same mistake negotiation. I am actually in the middle of running a working a, a workshop on negotiations <laughs> today. <laughs> and it's exactly what we don't tell people that negotiate to do. It's they, they fall into their own stereotypes of each other, and they portray each other in the worst possible way, mm-hmm. and they don't try to look from each other's point of view. And that's exactly what you expect of good negotiators. So they're just entrenched. And you're absolutely right. With an 80, what you say, there's 80 majority in parliament. He actually can decide, go whatever way he wants. And if he's not, as some portray, not a real Brexiter at heart, he's, he's Johnson at heart. Mm whatever goods for him. He has the room to maneuver now and to have a softer Brexit, but the way they are operating, the way, for instance, David Foster talked about it yesterday, it's just talking themselves into hard Brexit. And as you say, losing jobs and, and, and billions in these negotiations. And just a small thing, while we are in the middle of all this corona crisis, they tell us, that in a modern world we need to cooperate in a global world the only way to move forward with any crisis mm. is to work together brexit actually moves exactly in the opposite and that's what we are talking ourselves into tessa is the, is the concern at this point that a plurality of the now very lever dominated uk government may actually believe that line about how the eu needs britain more than britain needs the eu i'm always astonished how well, this goes down here in Britain, this argument. Uh, people just say these things. Uh, and if you spend a lot of time on the continent, you know, of course, that there's a very opposite op- opinion in Brussels or in <laughs> Berlin and in, in, in Vienna and in Paris. But it is being repeated and repeated. And I think people then think, OK, so the EU, of course, needs us more than we are. It has no basic basis in reality. And even if it wouldn't matter, because it's clear that it's very important for Britain to be rather close to the biggest trading block it has been trading with in the last 47 years in a very good way. So to move away from this and now play on the Canada style free trade agreement is an option. But mm. it will be a costly option. And if it just doesn't even happen, if that doesn't even happen, because Britain is leaving no matter what at the end of 2020, then good luck, because then it's sort of really chaos at the borders and it's very difficult for all those uh, medium-sized businesses. You know, the only people who can win from this is uh, Korea politicians sitting in Boris Johnson's government right now and, you know, gamblers with uh, currencies in the city. Probably lawyers. Yeah, exactly. The service <laughs> industry also has a little bit to go for. But they, in any case, are busy. You know, yeah. London Financial City as a place, uh, an important place yeah. in, in the global financial world is working fine anyways. You know, there's not a lot. If you ask to specialists in the city, there's not a lot of of space up there that you can win and where you can really make a lot more out of what Britain already has, a very good financial place. 
Okay, well, finally on today's news panel, the 2020 US presidential election is entering that phase at which the editorial boards of American newspapers emerge from their conclaves to announce the fruits of their beard-scratching vis-a-vis which presidential candidate they will endorse. Or, as it turns out, not. The Arizona Republic has declared itself out of the business of endorsing candidates for public office. Um, Yossi, they, they have made... or released an editorial explaining uh, this. They say that their readers, quote, tell us our endorsements, alienate them and blur the way they read our news stories. They don't see the sharp line we draw between our news and opinion content. Um, That kind of sounds like a bit of a reflection on the Arizona Republic's readers, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, To a large extent, probably most of the United States. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think the serious point about it is because the way that we consume media, probably what newspaper, a single newspaper recommends is not as important as it used to be. Again, you go back in time. And people read one newspaper, so what the newspaper told them, this was, Mm -hmm. you know, it's great influence. Nowadays, that the way we consume information is so different, so people can go through so many different outlets and read it, so we'll get different recommendations, or they are more confused. The other thing, the attention span is so short, they don't really read in depth many Mm. of these opinion opinion pages. And thirdly, you don't know what to believe anymore because there is so much around there that is it serious, is it not? So under this, I think actually, yes, it's a verdict on, on, on the people there in Arizona, but at the same time, it's it's a reflection how the media change and the way we consume it. Um, there is a bit of history here, uh, Tessa, at least there's a four-year history. Uh, the Arizona Republic endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. That was the first time in 126 years that the Arizona Republic had endorsed a Democrat, and they were very clear at the time that these are extraordinary and remarkable circumstances. We're not making this endorsement because we're any great fans of Hillary Clinton. It's just that we don't think the President of the United States should be a half-witted game show host who's never read a book in his life. I paraphrase slightly, but that was the unmistakable <laughs> gist. And a lot of their readers were incredibly unhappy uh, with that and, and let them know. Um, is this just a newspaper retreating in fear of its readers? Well, they are probably still licking their wounds of, uh, of this last 2016 uh, debacle in their recommendation. But I think, as Yossi also said, it's a general trend and it's not only reflecting on the Arizona Republic readers. I think it's a general thing that we are so polarized that readers just don't follow anymore one newspaper. But on the other hand, I think maybe it's it's a it's it's a good idea not to support single politicians because that's also a rather personal thing for newspapers to do. But what is what I think is very nice in the English uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world is to to come out with recommendations also for big political topics, like mm. the economists saying we are against Brexit and this is why. That's I think, is quite helpful in a world where people are so polarized and live in their own bubbles on social media. If credible media outlets still take a stance and have a kind of view on things which they express. So it might not be that you have to endorse one candidate necessarily, but that you in general endorse, for example, something like human rights or democracy could be a good idea. So we should not, as media people, retreat 
from the political arena, I think, completely and say, like, okay, you can believe what you want and you can follow who you want on Twitter and that's just it. Yossi, I want to go back to that point you raised about how people's media consumption is now, whether deliberately or just because it's stuff that drifts across your screen, much more diverse than it used to be. Um, I'm just wondering if there's something in the idea that the way people are reacting to that confusion is by more and more wanting the media to agree with them. People have, of course, always selected media sort of in tune with their own views and prejudices and bias. There probably aren't an awful lot of hard-leave Brexit voters listening to us right now, for example. But, but nonetheless, because people are now more often confronted perhaps by views they don't agree with, are they just getting angrier at the idea that they're being told things contrary to their beliefs? I think the way you consume media depends on our personality to a large extent. Do we want to get angry and say, I disagree with anything, I should say, <laughs> or, or to the contrary, we're not to reaffirm, to confirm what we believe already. Most of us probably do the latter and want kind of confirmation, affirmation of what we believe, but I think that's the, the, the important point that Tessa is making. Why should we endorse just on a personal level? Because then they enter into their personality, into their family life, on, you know, what they do. Instead of actually looking, those are the main issues, that's what the parties support or the candidates support. Again, in the United States, if it's the, the Second Amendment, mm -hmm. issue, issues, issues of human rights, health, which is a massive issue in the United States, uh, supporting multilateralism or taking the Trump view that... <laughs> United States first and that's about it and then you make your own conclusions who you support as a result of it. Tessa Shishkovitz and Yossi Merkelberg, thanks both for joining us. After this very short break, what do we know this week that we didn't know last week? It's time for What We Learned. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. We learned this week that whatever retirement options are available to US President Donald Trump when he hands over power to Eric in 2024, cricket commentator will not be among them. This is the country where your people cheer on some of the world's greatest cricket players from Suchin Tendulkar to Virat Kohli. While reading things out to a bemused crowd in Ahmedabad during his visit to India, Trump was as bamboozled by legendary Indian batsmen Sachin Tendulkar and Virat Kohli as many a non-Indian bowler. While it is impossible to imagine that Trump himself could care less about this or indeed anything other than Trump himself, he can at least be thankful that he was not obliged to speak in India at any point during the test career of Srinivasaragavan Venkatragavan. The fact that it took not less than nine attempts to pronounce that, and it still probably isn't quite right, in no way invalidates the premise of this joke. We also learned this week that the glorious tradition of diplomacy via the passive-aggressive renaming of streets continues. Municipal authorities in Prague announced plans to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the assassination of Russian opposition figurehead Boris Nemtsov by renaming in his honour the street on which Russia's Czech embassy sits. 
Other similar manoeuvres of bygone years have included Glasgow's decision during Nelson Mandela's long imprisonment during the apartheid decades to name after him the square in which resided South Africa's Consul General in Scotland. The Nay Plus Ultra remains Iran's decision back in 1981 to rename Winston Churchill Street, on which the UK's embassy in Tehran sits, after IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands. Similar subtle protests of Boris Nemtsov's murder have previously been undertaken in Washington, D.C., Vilnius and Kiev. Here's Boris Nemtsov's friend and comrade Vladimir Kiaromirza speaking on Thursday's briefing. The murder of Boris Nemtsov was the most high-profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia. You know, Russia is a country of symbols. Symbols matter. And, and this gesture that some people may see as something, you know, symbolic and, you know, why would people care about a street name... I can tell you it's powerful, and I can tell you it's profoundly meaningful when people do send that message. And for me as a Russian, not only politician, but as a Russian citizen, there can be nothing more pro-Russian than to name a street or a square or a park in front of the Russian embassy after a Russian statesman. We learned that a possible consequence of a failed presidential campaign may be the complete unmooring from common sense of the candidate in question. Little else appears to explain the decision of 2020 Democratic also-ran and still-serving New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio to enlist former Generation X frontman turned big in the 80s peroxided Elvis impersonator Billy Idol to front a campaign against idling, i.e. thoughtless motorists leaving their engines running while stationary. Idle, idle, you can see what de Blasio is doing there, but where does this end in terms of employing post-punk artists to raise standards of urban behaviour? Depeche Mode, encouraging better lawn care? You may believe that that is a terrible, terrible pun, and you may well be right, but you won't be Director of Communications for the Mayor of New York City this time next week. And we learned of an entrancing bylaw in the governance of the National Hockey League, and we learned as a consequence of same that the wildest dreams of middle-aged sports fans can come true. We have word that Dave Ayers, 42 years of age, emergency support goaltender, will be forced into service here for the Hurricanes. And here he comes, number 90 for the Carolina Hurricanes is Dave Ayers. The arcane rule in question holds that all home teams in the NHL have to designate an emergency goaltender to be called upon by either side in the vastly unlikely event that both their starting and substitute goaltender are injured. Exactly this misfortune befell the Carolina Hurricanes on their visit to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Q 42-year-old David Ayres, practice goaltender for the Maple Leafs, whose day job is driving the ice resurfacing machine at a lower league Toronto hockey rink, and who is also a survivor of skin cancer and a kidney transplant. In the sappy matinee movie telling of such events, the unlikely hero would maybe concede a couple of soft goals before summoning something superhuman from within himself and saving seven shots in the third period to help win the game. In real life, however, that's exactly what happened. Three seconds left, here's Clifford, stopped by David Ayers! 
Blues. The Carolina Hurricanes surround him and defeat the Toronto Maple Leafs 6-3. I'm sure that sweater goes to the Hall of Fame. Number 90 will live on for the Carolina Hurricanes, 42 years of age. Credit due as well to the defeated Maple Leafs home fans who stood to clap Ayers off afterwards. Ayers was flown to rally North Carolina as the Hurricanes guest of honour at their next home game. Shirts bearing his name and one-off number are a hot item at the Canes team store. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper offered Ayers honorary citizenship and Ayers for his part is seeking to use his brief blaze of spotlight to raise funds for kidney foundations. There isn't a punchline to this, it's just a really nice story, a commodity of which the world often seems short. That is all for today. Monocle's House View was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Jorling Goffin and Charlie German. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Menu. There's a new edition of Monocle's House View at 9am on Saturday and Monocle's House View returns as well at 1800 London time on Monday. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.